What a fantastic privilege to be with you all this morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Eugene van Deventer, and I am one of the elders uh, at this church uh, called Every Nation Linwood. And as you all know, we are currently busy with a sermon series called uh, Colossians. Why? Because we're going through the book of Colossians. And today, we'll be standing still at Colossians 3. Donnie did Colossians 1. Eugene did Colossians 2, and I will be at Colossians 3. And those of you who know your Bible know that at this, in this specific chapter, chapter 3, there's this part that many people hear at weddings where um, the, Paul tells the church, especially the women, to submit to their beautiful, handsome, intelligent, powerful husbands. <laughs> That's not true. But he does tell, talk about submission there. So let's make a deal. Today, I will not be talking and preaching a wedding sermon and talking about the role of the husband and the wife. Um, let's leave that for another wedding. Today, I'll be talking about all the things that said earlier in the chapter, except for those last six chapters. So is that okay with you if you don't, men, are you happy with that? Women, are you happy with that? <laughs> All right, but before we go into the Word, let's quickly pray. Uh, Father, we are here, um, as Armand said, you're frozen chosen, but I ask that you will warm our hearts. And Holy Spirit, I ask specifically that you will open our ears and our minds to what you want to share with us today, uh, and how the relevance of the Colossian world is relevant to us today. So may your Spirit empower us and guide us for your truth and your guidance. In Jesus' name, I pray. And everyone says, amen. amen. So open your Bibles, Colossians 3, for those of you who have your Bibles. For those who don't, you can go and follow with me. Let's start reading. Living as those made alive in Christ. Since then, you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden in Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways. In the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity." Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body 
you are called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all the wisdoms through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen. Well, that was easy. Thank you, guys. It was a lovely sermon. It's all done. Paul said everything I wanted to say. So we'll have communion now, and then after that, it's coffee, right? <laughs> of course. I see you don't want to leave and have coffee yet, and I know you aren't ready. Because it does sound, when we read the Scripture, that this is a conclusion, right? It sounds like a conclusion, because it is a conclusion. Chapter 1 and chapter 2 set up the premise for the situation that the Colossians were living in. And chapter 3 and 4 is now, now go and do. So it's easy for us to just take the word and go and do. But it's not that easy if we don't know why they're going to do and what the historical situation was of the Colossians during that time. So... For us to make sense of Paul's conclusion, we need to understand and go back and research the history and the culture of whom, to whom Paul was writing these letters to. So it's important for us to know that this, this letter, Paul addresses to a group of people he never met in his life, to a church that he didn't plant. A co-worker of Paul called Epaphras came and visited Paul while he was in prison and said, hey, this is what's going in Colossian culture, and these are the, the societal pressures that they are struggling with. And as a result of that, they started turning away from Jesus Christ. And this made Paul very alarmed, so alarmed that he immediately wrote a letter to the Colossians to try and guide them back on the path of Christ. So imagine, randomly, Steve Murrell sends a letter to every nation, Linwood, hey guys, I heard this from Donnie, uh, let's quickly just recalibrate. And that's exactly what the letter from Paul is to the Colossians. So what do we do know by now? Who can tell me to whom was this letter written? Don't say the Colossians. Specifically, the church of the Colossians, right? Of Colossae. It wasn't written to the general population. It was written specifically to the church facing cultural pressures of the city and the lifestyle of its people in Colossae. So, what were these pressures they were facing? The first one was financial pride. So, if you know your uh, maps a little bit, Asia Minor, which is current-day Turkey, the cities of Colossae and Laodicea, which was like 15 kilometers away, were extremely rich due to their high-quality fabrics, especially as a result of Laodicean black dye. So they had this black dye, which was very, very popular, and Colossian wool. So taking the Colossian wool and the Laodicean dye, they made these beautiful, pitch-black Laodicean fabrics. They were so rich that when a devastating earthquake hit the rich region shortly after the letter, they rejected the money from Caesar and repaired the city themselves, 
leaving Rome and its government without a say to what and how they can rebuild, leaving them, them independent of Caesar. They were so prideful, in fact, that it even gets mentioned in the book of Revelations. So let's quickly read that letter to the Laodiceans. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot, neither cold, and I wish you were either the one or the other. But because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm going to spit you out of, your out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in fire so that you can become rich. And white clothes, hello, white clothes, that's interesting, to wear so you can cover your shamefulness and nakedness and self to put on your eyes so you can see. Another cultural struggle that they were faced with is sexual immorality. The city of Colossae formed part of the first century Greco-Roman landscape where philosophy and liberalism were rampant. And an anything goes mentality was around. In this one letter to the Corinthians, Paul says, uh, the people tell him, food for stomach and stomach for food, which is a reference to like, hey, I'm in the mood, so you're in the mood, let's do it. It's like, I've got the itch, you've got to scratch. It's nothing to do with, with the communion of sexual uh, relations. It's all about, I'm hungry, I need to eat. So heterosexual relationships and marriage were the norm and the foundation of the society. However, extramarital affairs and concubinage were not uncommon, particularly among upper classes. Slaves were also often used for sexual purposes as they were considered property of their owners. Homosexual relations were accepted in certain contexts. In ancient Greece, male-male relationships were part of social and educational practices. What does that mean? So I would send my boy to school, because girls didn't go to school that day, and at some stage it was okay if they started having intimate relations with each other and wasn't frowned upon. There's actually uh, Greek words uh, naming the parties involved. Prostitution was prevalent in Greco-Roman world. It existed in various forms, from street prostitution to high-end courtesans who catered to the wealthy. In some cases, prostitution was regulated by the state and considered a legit legitimate profession. The Greco-Roman world also produced a significant amount of art and, uh, or erotic art and literature, in, in essence, pornography. Examples include the frescoes in Pompeii depicting sexual scenes, sculptures, such as the famous sleeping Hermaphroditus, and the works of Ovid, the art of love, and erotic poetry from Sappho. Another cultural pressure they were facing was religious syncretism. Now, that's a big word which is the blending of religious beliefs into one new system and is the incorporation of other beliefs into a religious tradition. So if you remember correctly, last week Eugene spoke about this, where they started believing in many gods, and in some cases they even started praying to biblical angels. When a spring or a fountain came up from the earth as a result of the earthquakes, 
they started praying to the angel Michael from the Bible <laughs> because they thought it was him. On the far left, on the far right, that was left, left. On the far right, you have the people saying, you have to adhere to Jewish traditions. You have to obey these laws and you have to be circumcised, otherwise you will not see the kingdom of God. There was a total mush of multiple religions and ultimately the supremacy of Christ dissipated. So all these things, and I'm sure there's many more, sound absurd, doesn't it? Praying to angels and multiple gods, mutilating your body, body to ensure your salvation. Paul addresses all of these pressures, some of these pressures in his letter to the Colossians. To the Christians of the time, the pressures were really real. For them, they had to face tough decisions because they were confronted with these things the whole time. Now the question is, 2,000 years later, how many of these things still exist? How many of these pressures are we still facing today? <laughs> all of them, <laughs> right? Nothing's changed. When I say the following words, quickly put on the next slide. Interest rates, repo rates, ESCOM, South African Airways, SARS, appropriation without compensation, BEE, EFF, LGBTQIA, plus, plus, plus. Do you perhaps think somebody needs to do something? We need to fight this. That's it. <laughs> I'm immigrating. My kids have no future in this country. What are the emotions that you are feeling? Is it anger, rage, malice? What are the words you speak around the bras and the coffee tables? Is it slander and filthy languages? Whilst for preparing for the sermon, I was really focused on what God wanted to say to us specifically in Linwood, but also in South Africa in a general sense. So I started reading Colossians over and over and over again. I even took my Bible app and I looped the, the whole book of Colossians over and over and over again. And as I was hearing the message to the Colossians, my phone started going ping, doo-doo, doo-doo. All my WhatsApp groups started sending me messages. Yes, it was Pride Month, and all our, and our favorite guilty pleasure, Woolworth Stores, just crossed a line that I wasn't so comfortable with. The cultural pressures of this world have always been there, and slowly but surely creeping closer and closer, till finally it came so close that I now too had to make a stance or at least have an opinion. And I know gender ideology and identity politics 
are not the only cultural pressures we face in South Africa. But being confronted with a new pressure and a new opinion I have to make up opened a can of worms, forcing me not to be ignorant anymore. We cannot ignore these pressures any longer. So what are we as Christians to do with the sinful expressions that are against the will of God? Whether it be theft, whether it be corruption, whether it be injustices, racism, or sexual sin. What are our roles as Christians? So I started doing a lot of research. It took me two and a half weeks. Where does the Bible say we need to correct other people's sins? Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault, just between the two of you. If they listen, you have won them over. Galatians 6, verse 1. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin, You who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently, but watch yourselves or you may be tempted. Great. So everything is sorted. I have to tell my brothers and sisters when they sin and I have to correct them gently. But who is my brother and who is my sister? The verses specifically talk about the saints, the brothers and the sisters in Christ, the Christians. Okay, so I did even more research. Where in the Bible does it say we need to correct the sins of people who aren't Christian or who don't believe in God? Nowhere. Did you know that nowhere in the Bible does it outright say we must specifically address the sins of non-believers? In fact, Paul at one stage says the following. I wrote to you in my previous letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning that the sexually immoral of this world, so I'm not talking about the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and the swindlers and the idolaters, since then you would need to go out of this world. (laughs) It's prevalent. You can't escape it. You're going to interact with these people. But now I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil from those among you. Yes, there is a lot about repenting and turning towards Jesus, and then as a result, people will turn away from sin. But the repentance is towards Jesus. We call it the gospel. The Holy Spirit will convict the godless by revealing the truth of Christ to the godless, according to John 16. And Christ will offer them a chance for redemption. We must not convict. That is not our role. That is the role of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so what now? What must I do? (laughs) How am I supposed to change a world 
If I cannot even address the inequities and the pressures this world, sin is placing on me and my family. I can't just stand and do nothing. I must fight. I must stand up. I must stand for something I believe in. Something that is true and pure and godly. Where in the Bible does it say I have to fight for my faith and my beliefs? Matthew 5 verse 39. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Ephesians 6, verse 10 and 12 and verse 18. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. John 8. At dawn, he appeared again at the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him. And he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? They were using this question in, as a trap in order to have a basis of accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write in the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let every one of you who is out without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time. The older ones first, the wiser ones first. Until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No, sir. No one, sir, she said. Neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. So what is God's heart in these situations? How should I react? I would like to read you something that happened seven years ago to me that totally changed my heart to what God feels about the world and its people. This is a Facebook conversation with an acquaintance of mine who I knew in high school who moved to London with her wife, and her son. Would you put up the picture for me? Not that one. We already spoke about that. That one. I'm going to read in Afrikaans. Sorry for the... Uh, translate to your friend <laughs> if you need to. But it was an Afrikaans message. Hey, Tris. This is seven years ago. My boy was just about born and my wife was still breastfeeding. So I was half awake and half asleep at night. <laughs> Hey Tris, ek leef vanavond en luister muziek terwyl Jana vir my siek nie kos gee 
en ek kan nie ophou aan jou dink nie. Hoop alles gaan goed met jou. I haven't spoken to her in seven years. My gebed vanavond vir jou is dat Jesus' vrede en liefde vir jou, dat jy Jesus' liefde en vrede sal ervaar en dat jy content sal wees en ris en verfrissing sal kry in sy teenwoordigheid. Bijgesê, ek weet nie wat jou geloofsoortuigings is nie, wat jy dink oor God nie, ek ken jou nie op daardie vlak nie. Wat ek wel weet is dat jy awesome is en vanavond is jy en Tanja op my hart. Ek wens die beste vir julle, lekker aan het verder. This is, this is 10 minutes past 1 in the morning. So it's not like waking hours. This is, she replies, like 5 seconds, ding! Jy sal nooit die gewig van jou boodskap vanavond begryk nie. Vreselik baie dankie. Ek het ervaar, ek moes het sê, dit gebeur nie noodwendig baie met my nie, maar vanavond kon ek nie slaap voordat ek jou message nie. My hart was skoon ongemakkelijk, maar ja wat, ek voel die Heere is baie baie lief vir jou en wil jou vanavond net comfort. Ding! My foon het letterlik gepinkt terwijl ek voor die spiel staan. My oor is vodde van heil. Ek waardeer het so vreselik baie baie. Ek is sprakeloos. Baie baie dankie. Dis net so ver gaande, ek vir die eerste keer in een bitter lang tyd vandag gebid en gevra vir hulp. Maar hy het my so pas met soveel dankbaarheid gevul, dat ek nie tans in woorde kan omsit nie. Ek is oprecht dankbaar, dat jy die tyd gemaakt om my te kontak. In contrast to feelings of I need to do something. God said, for Teresa's life, I need to do something. And I can't use force. After this incident, I was convinced that God was eagerly waiting for intimacy with his creation. But what is my role? So how do we, like the Colossians of Colossae, the Christians, navigate the cultural pressures of this world? Remember at the beginning I said that in the sermon Paul already gave the answer. So let's jump back into the word. Let's open up Colossians 3 again. Living as those made alive in Christ. Colossians 3. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ. When Christ who is your life, appears, then also, then you also will appear with him in glory. When you are confronted with those things that upset you earlier, whether it be financial, political, injustice, social or cultural, Paul wants us to turn our eyes upon the kingdom that is not of this earth. A kingdom where there is freedom and justice, and ultimately dying to self. Because why do I reject an object? Because I felt uncomfortable with this picture. I felt uncomfortable with that WhatsApp. 
I need to change my environment so I can feel more comfortable. <laughs> Ultimately, dying to self and accepting that God is still in control. He is still in control. Because he is God. When we pray, let your kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven, and seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, then everything shall be added unto those who seek him earnestly. This is what Jesus wants. What do you must must you do as Christians in your own personal lives when conflicted? We don't know how many pastors stand on the, the podium here addicted to pornography, and we can't fight them because we don't know. So we only fight the things we know. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Yes, God does not condone sin. That's why Paul even says, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. I used to do those things until I met Christ. But Christ changed me through a loving environment of family. But I first had to meet Christ. You used to walk in these ways, Eugene, in the life you once lived. But now you must rid yourselves of things such as rage, anger, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. When Donnie preached Colossians 1 about the knowledge of God's will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, we should live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way. That's what you as a Christian are called to do. Bearing fruit in every good work. Do not be conformed to the patterns of this world. Do not tolerate sin. Do not tolerate those things that made you uncomfortable. It's not your place to convict. It's your place to, we'll get to it. <laughs> and because of that knowledge, when we are confronted with the world, we don't act like he says here. Don't act with anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language, but bear good fruit. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with all its practices and have put on a new self. You don't look like the other people who are angry and uh, slander and have filthy language, which is being renewed in the knowledge, in the image of its creator. Here, in the kingdom of God, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all and is in all. Ultimately, we must take into account that what Eugene preached last week in chapter 2. And acknowledge what? The supremacy of Christ. He is in control. All things were made through him, by him, and for him. Irrespective of race and creed. Clarifying that Jesus is the only Lord. Jesus is all-sufficient, even in the situation where you are feeling uncomfortable by the worldly pressures. Jesus is all-sufficient. And that there is no need to add extra legalistic corrective steps to earn salvation. And finally, that the gospel is the answer to all your sin and the ultimate truth. He will be the one who convicts. So what must we do? Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself 
with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do when you are confronted with all these pressures, same for the Colossians, same today, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What picture of Jesus do you want to portray to the world? One of rejection? Or one of the one who is the prince of peace? When people who do and people who don't know God encounter you, they must realize that because of Christ and the mission that you are sent on as an individual, that you are different. You are different because you are compassionate, you are kind, you are humble, gentle, and patient. You bear with God's people and you forgive. And when the time is right, like 10 past one in the morning, or 10 past midnight in the morning, they will be confronted with a new culture. One that is not of this earth, but of things above. And then all you have to do is salt. S, start a conversation. Ask questions. Listen. Tell them about Jesus. I'm going to end with the scripture in 1 Peter. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you, for the reason, for the hope you, that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Let's close our eyes. Lord, I know this is so much to chew on and so much to to take in, but I know that your word, and that we read a lot of word today, is stronger than any of my opinions. May we hold on to the truth, which is your word, and then when we go out and we meet these people, may they see something different. May they see the hope that is within us. May your love and your peace fill the rooms wherever we go so that people will be intoxicated with your aroma, with your presence, 
And maybe, as Paul says, die to ourselves and clothe ourselves in Christ. When they look at us, they will see us, not for whom we are, but for whom Christ made us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.